You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club coming at you from, well, right before the Starkiller base was destroyed. I gotta say, sure is nice here. There's a lot of snow. I really like this planet. Yeah. Good job, guys. Good job. Really well engineered, don't you think, John? I think it's... um. You know, I, I've always thought that it would have been cooler had they built the base and then, like, sort of the planet formed around it sort of thing. It was such a big technological thing. But, hey, that's the way I think. But, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to miss snow this winter, so uh, I'm happy to be here, whatever planet <laughs> Starkiller Base is. I can't imagine there was a planet called Starkiller Base at first. No, um, actually, fans have speculated that it was hollowed out Ilum. Hmm. Well, I thought Which Ilum would make was, sense. I thought, but I thought that uh, Ilum was largely destroyed when Ahsoka went to it. The image I had in my mind was of it. It was like basically shattered into pieces. Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't think it's shattered into pieces, but it has been heavily mined. Okay, uh, that well, is maybe, sure. maybe that's it. Maybe I need to revisit the Ahsoka book to um, find but, out what the description uh, was. Aside from that, before we completely get off the track and people have no idea what we're even talking about the reason we're coming from you from star killer basis we're going to be talking about the latest book from star wars called phasma by delilah s dawson it has just been released this past force friday two or three or however many numbers you want to put in front of it it's just force friday that's what it was um and uh, we're going to be talking about that. I'm really excited to do that. So yeah. uh, before we dive into everything, just a quick reminder, of course, you can find us all over the place, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on iTunes at iTunes.com slash TrekFM. We're a feature provider there. Uh, you can also um, leave us a star rating and review while you're there. It would really help out the show. It makes it easier for people to find us when they're searching for shows just like the 602 Club. So hit us up with the star rating review and anybody who does that gets uh, thanked on the show. And so uh, you can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We do have our listeners only discussion group, and that is on Facebook. Uh, you can get there by typing Babel into the search field on Facebook, or you can go to our website at Trek.fm, and while you're looking around at all of our different shows, any of those show pages, you can press discussion, and it would bring you there as well. If you would like to send us an email, we love getting those. Uh, go over to trek.fm slash contact, choose the show, choose the 602 Club, and that will come to me and any other host there that week. And so, John, um, I, I wanted to ask before we dove into the book, you know, we 
Head Force Friday, it was uh, two different books got released. We got Phasma and Leia, Princess of Alderaan, and that one is by Claudia Gray. We'll be talking about that one next week on the 602 Club. But I just kind of wanted to know, with these two books, uh, you know, obviously there was a deluge of books that came out, and we covered them all uh, before the, the Force Awakens. Were you excited about these two books coming out as it's the journey to the last Jedi? Oh, so many journeys. They're always having so many journeys. I mean, we're all on a journey, John. So, you know, honestly, I I enjoy the callback to one of my favorite 80s bands, too. So journey was journey was pretty fantastic. Yeah. And which fits because, you know, they just told us to don't stop believing. That's right. Uh, you know, I was I was as excited as anybody could be uh, for for the books. I was very interested in. You, you, I'm, we're we're big fans of Claudia Gray, so I saw she was writing a book. Hey, I'm in. But then Phasma had me intrigued because I think that this was a character that always I was curious as to why so much was made of her leading up to the Force Awakens which is kind of unfair because it, she was sort of supposed to be the Boba Fett character. I was supposed to be captivated by her, but I think they overplayed their hand leading up to it so that I I didn't have an opportunity to be captivated by her. I was anticipating her too much. So I was very much looking forward to the opportunity to find out what made her special, so to speak. I really, I yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, I, I think... One of the things that was so interesting, it, by creating such a aura about her before the film, I think, I mean, and I don't think that I'm misstepping when I say she was utterly disappointing in the movie. Yep. And I think everybody universally feels like that. She just wasn't, I mean, the only thing that happens to her, really, is that she is taken out by Chewie, which is hilarious, uh, and then thrown into a trash compactor after she gives up very easily the shield codes for Starkiller Base. So yeah. with those two things in mind, I think everybody came away scratching their heads thinking, what, what's so great about Phasma again? I don't, what? You know, it's almost like the wharf effect, because here we are on Trek FM, might as well make a Star Trek, uh, you know, illusion here, but... It, it, I've always called it the Worf effect, where Worf was the Klingon. He was supposed to be the tough guy. And Phasma was sold as, oh, here's a super trooper. This is really wild. And then the one fight you see, you know, she gets her helmet handed to her. And is like, well, okay. It's sort of like Worf spent, you know, several seasons yeah. on The Next Generation <laughs> just getting his butt handed to him over and over again to the point where it was like, well, I don't see him as tough. I just see him as fodder at this. You know, he... He just wears the enemy out before they get the Picard or something like that. Yeah, but, it wasn't until Deep Space Nine at the very end where he finally kills the Chancellor right. of the Klingon Empire. Spoilers. Uh, and has the chance to become the Chancellor of the Klingon Empire. Yeah. Yeah, he, he stops getting his butt handed to him in, in Deep Space Nine. <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, I mean, and that's the thing is I, I think that Phasma would have been a cool and fun character had they done less press for her leading up to it. Yeah, and I think one of the things, and, and I... The moment they decided to bring her back in The Last Jedi, I think that they did feel the need to 
explain the character to, to kind of give us a, a reason for her being back and not just being a character that, you know, was lost to a Sarlacc, uh, basically, or a trash compactor. <laughs> um, and what Delilah Dawson does here, and this is one of the things that I think is so interesting in the book, is that, and this is happening a lot more in the Star Wars books, and I, I think it's because it allows them freedom which is to do books that become character studies. And I think it's very clear that this book, in a lot of ways, is a character study of who this person is and what it is that causes the actions that we see in The Force Awakens to make more sense. Sure. Yeah, and why she would be uh, feared and domineering and what she did to get to that position. But also I think that the character study of Phasma is done in such a way to become, in a large sense, the story of the the character of the First Order and how even that has evolved yes. through time. You know, the, the First Order was something before Phasma showed up, but then she has come to embody what the First Order, as led by Kylo Ren and uh, Armitage Hux and Phasma, is going to be. And so I think that that in and of itself is sort of an interesting world-building moment of understanding how something can start as a very, and I'm not saying this in a positive manner, but something can start as a very pure ideal, but even that is going to come to be corrupted over time as people like Phasma become part of it. Yeah, I, I think that is something that is so fascinating in the story because, um, yeah, we'll, oh gosh, so much to dig into. But just talking about Phasma, because we'll get to the First Order in just a little bit. Um, and, and really, like you're saying, this is all interconnected, which is one of the things I think that makes the book so, I'll just go out and say it, I think this is a great book because the way in which everything fits together is thematically is really well done. Um, I think Delilah Dawson does a great job of, of taking all of these themes and using the story she's telling about Phasma to also tell that story about the First Order and how all of these things could fit together. And as, you know, Star Wars tends to do, I think give us maybe a little bit of a look at history and our present and our past and our future all together. And I, I think it's, it's, it's just really well done. Um, but the thing that struck me just about the character specifically is that this is a person who knows exactly what she is. And what she is is the embodiment of Darwinian theology. <laughs> of just, she will do whatever it takes to survive. It doesn't matter who she has to kill, who she has to betray. I mean, this is that kind of character. She will do literally whatever it takes to survive, that's all that matters to her. And I thought that was kind of a fascinating thing to see, to, to see a character who was so sold out to only one idea, and that was her own survival. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting as well because she was anachronistic within her own culture. And I think that's the really interesting thing as well about her arc is that you can't chalk it up. It would be very easy to look at where Phasma comes from. And this is not a spoiler, but she comes from a planet where life is very difficult. You have to 
to have your wits about you and you have to be a great fighter to survive. Simply to exist is a battle on her planet. But even within that context, you come to find out that she is different in the sense that everybody around her is working for the good of the tribe to survive, so to speak. All of the tribes are there and they're cutthroat with each other, but they're still tribes. But even within that context, Phasma is singular. She exists only for self. So she is even, uh, she's, I, I agree with you, she exhibits that Darwinian ideal, but even Darwinian, uh, you know, sort of survival of the fittest stuff has room for the tribe to exist, has room for the herd, has room for these things because these animals will carry forward. But then you get that special jewel every so often that comes in and is just unique from birth. So I think that in a sense, there's an an interesting study in the nature of evil in a sense because you know we see with Anakin's arc that evil is is not you're not born bad your circumstances can lead to you making bad decisions and you becoming bad whereas phasma seems to be uh, to make a a callback to a very old school black and white movie the bad seed she's always the one that just from the get go was a problem is and the thing is Hux is a part of this story, and he seems to have always been a problem. Are we getting some sort of shadowy uh, fill-in about Kylo Ren? Was he always a problem? Ooh, that's a that's a really great question, man. I had not thought of that, but it would make sense for this First Order to kind of collect people like this. Um, yeah, well, I really like what you said about the idea, and I thought that that was one of the fascinating things, is that she is an outlier on her own planet. Even though this planet, as I said, you know, she's kind of this embodiment of Darwinian ideology, theology of survival of the fittest, she takes that to the nth degree, right? Like, the it, to mean only her. <laughs> um Whereas the planet itself is kind of the embodiment of survival of the fittest. You have to be the fittest to survive on her planet, especially at the part of her planet that she lives. They live on all of these um, crazy rock formations that's close to the sea. Um, their planet seems to have been one that, as far as they know at the beginning, they don't really know what happened to their planet because so much has been lost. And basically, I mean, to put it in terms that people could understand if you haven't read the book it's mad max and star wars like that's the kind of planet they live on it's this awful post-apocalyptic world where people have turned to the basic instincts of survival and like you said they've become these little tribes where it's just about the tribe surviving and we're going to do whatever it takes for the tribe to survive and there's wars between the tribes and she's the one who just kind of transcends all of that and it's like I don't care who survives as long as I survive but at the same time there's a there's an odd sort of uh, uh, symmetry to the those that want to survive the decimation of the empire she really mm-hmm. does in a sense embody the first order itself in that the empire is destroyed the galaxy has been torn asunder and if you were an imperial, you would look about and see a wasteland of disorder and chaos and 
fear and destruction as Cardinal does. And Phasma really does embody that first order mentality of no, I will impose order on this chaos and I will make it make sense and I will make it livable and survivable. By Ooh, sounds almost like to... a dark night I know where he says <laughs> that you have to make the world make sense. Um, the world only makes sense if you force it to. Ha- hashtag hmm. not my dark night. But the uh, <laughs> I'm just saying that what you just said sounds a lawful like like a Batman I know before Superman turns him around. <laughs> uh, anyway, did you pull anything <laughs> stretching for that? Did you pull? Something? No, I didn't no, have to. Just, it was, was right there. You just laid it out on the table, and I took it. Well, um, there you go. Uh, you know what? You just proved that Batman. <laughs> Batman is now Phasma. There we go. Thank you and good night. <laughs> Batman equals Phasma. There you go. At least that Batman. Yes. Um. <laughs> Wow, that's funny. So, you know what? No, I really like this because um, one of the things that's so interesting about Phasma is that part of her drive to do anything to survive also means that she will be exactly what people want her to be, at least in their eyes, and creates her own reality in this sense that the moment that they're not useful anymore, she kills them and becomes part of another group and becomes what they want. Um, it's like she's like the Taylor Swift of bad guys. Um, you know, <laughs> she'll just, you know, huh. uh, there's a, a lyric that Taylor Swift says um, where she says, like, I can be what you want for a month or so. And uh, one of her songs, it's something to that. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of what Phasma does. Okay. She will become whatever people want her to be. And as long as it, it benefits her, uh, and the moment that, that she's able to, she kills them. So she continually creates her own altered reality. And it's kind of creepy because she literally exchanges the truth for a lie and makes the lie her truth. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that. Uh, you know, a, another thing that um, she reminds me of, actually, because it, there's such a point throughout the entire thing, because she comes from a culture where masks are valued, and it's pointed out that she always wore her mask, and we've only seen her on screen in her mask, and it's very much a, a point that Cardinal, the character of Cardinal gets to, where he says nobody's ever seen her without her mask. Mm-hmm. It, I think it really is interesting in that, in a sense, it reminds me almost of a Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers from the horror genre where they're defined yeah. by their masks. And then I think there's an added step here because Kylo Ren is defined by his mask. And when he loses his mask is, you know, when he seems to lose his footing, uh, as it were. And... So I wonder if there's almost a parallel there that the first order that people like Phasma and Ren are defined by their masks and the people you truly have to fear, as we come to find out in the book, are Armitage Hux, who are like that in plain view, who don't have feel any need to disguise what they really are. Well, and, and I think that that's so interesting because there's also this way in which Phasma's mask hides the fact that she is less than human through her actions. Like that's something that we see and and that as she kind of makes the transition in the book from wearing the uh the masks and the outfit of her tribe 
to the one of the First Order, she becomes more and more robotic or droid-like. And, and that, that every bit of humanity is kind of being squelched out of her. And by extension, what we see is that the, the First Order does this as well. But I, I that idea of like this... This mask is that she's covering up her humanity because she doesn't even have humanity. Because humanity, yeah. as a, you you feel like De- Delilah Dawson in the book is is portraying it as is somebody like Sev, um, or you know even Cardinal who has this. It, it, you wouldn't expect Siv or 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 uh, you know who where she grew up to have this kind of humanity or Cardinal um, with what he's been through and and who he is in the first order but even they have this semblance of an idea of what's somehow good or right and even if it's been skewed or warped in some way they still have it whereas she and somebody like brendel hucks and and armitage hucks and maybe even kylo ren don't it seem to have at all um kylo's a little bit of we're we're we are doing a little bit of um speculation on that but i mean the idea of, the, yeah, that's a that's a super scary thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, although it, it does it, something that supports that as well is is the fact that uh, and to get to sort of the serial killer mentality of it is um, Dawson does a good point of uh, underlining that as Phasma learns to speak uh, the dialect closer to Brendel, she's imitating his voice and his accent. And that is sort of a a hint of, uh, you know, a sociopath is that they're an imitator. They don't like that, that empathy. You know, you know what? They're, they're like replicants. Like they, they imitate emotion, yes. but they don't have emotion. They yeah. learn how to function in society by observing the others around them. And I think that carries through as well. So, you know, I, I have to yeah, give. She's like the Dexter of Star Wars. Ooh, that's a great pull. That's exactly right. You're absolutely right. The Dexter of Star Wars. Uh, excellent, excellent, excellent point. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Which is so creepy, and and I think that's what Delilah Dawson does so well in the book, and she really, she makes it scary. You know, she makes this type of behavior and this type of person who is so utterly selfish and self-absorbed that nothing else matters to them but their own survival one of the scariest villains you've ever seen because isn't that the scariest type of person in the world somebody who literally cares nothing for anyone else but themselves you know there's actually a a very large sense here for me comparing this book about phasma to the stuff that we got about boba fett before the prequels uh completely invalidated all of that nonsense where she does in this book what I think should have been done with Boba Fett in the 90s, in that that expansive time of the expanded universe when the prequels were never, you know, wasn't even in anybody's mind. And they were free to create the backstory for Boba Fett. There was this immediate drive, this immediate urge to alleviate him of his villainy and turn him into an anti-hero. That's where we get Jaster Mareel from. That's where we get a whole ton of where he goes around with Dengar and they, they sort of softened him in the comics and stuff like that. And you find out that he was just really rough and utilitarian and, and almost sympathetic in a way. And they pursued that path with Fett. And that was what was so dissatisfying for me. And so I give real credit to Dawson 
for going full steam ahead and saying, I'm not going to make Phasma likable. She's not a care. She's not a hero character. This is a character and we're going to study her, but they, but she resists the urge to make her seem to have a redemptive arc in any way, or for me to look at her on screen and say, Oh yeah, yeah, but you know, and I think that, that again, I think that really ties into why she's, an outlier in her own tribe at the very beginning through the whole thing. Dawson goes the extra mile to prove that Phasma is not a hero. Even by accident is not there. There's nothing particularly redeemable about her character at this point. To quote uh, Mike Cole, who was on the masculinity panel uh, that I did at Star Wars uh, Dragon Ton track that we released on um, our aggressive negotiations track. Phasma is a stone cold dealer of death. Like that's just who she is, and I think it's it's phenomenal that, like you said, Dawson doesn't shy away from kind of making this Hannibalistic type of character who's just so ingrained with the evil of of this again I, I feel like it's the ultimate selfishness that um again she doesn't explain away as the planet that she grew up on or anything like that it's just this is who this person is and what we know that to be is evil because it cares nothing for anybody else but herself and and it's it's great that 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 we are just allowed to have a character who is just utterly pure evil, but at the same time, I don't think is just a one-note character. That's what's so interesting. Uh, I think Dawson is able to create through the stories that you tell here about her past um, that you're never quite sure how how she's going to make that turn on whoever it is that she's going to turn on, and that's what's so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So the the story setup is this for, for the book um, that Cardinal, who is uh, and was Brendel Hux's right hand man, has been supplanted by Phasma in the sense that he used to be the only trainer of the recruits. Right? I put that in air quotes. The recruits that they would get for <laughs> the first order troopers, and he was a part of the training program that brought them up. Once Phasma arrives, she becomes the person who finishes the training. He starts the training. So he has the children. She has the teens on into Trooper. And he begins to distrust who she is. And so he tracks down a Republic, or not Republic, but a Resistance spy who has also been on the trail of who Phasma is for the Resistance. And captures her her name is Vi and she tells him all of these stories and what I thought was so interesting was the way in which the book here really shows the importance of history and context because that's how we know what something is or who somebody is is because of those two things and I really I I thought in the world we live in today this is one of the most important points that the book makes yeah, I mean, uh, you know, up to and including Vi says at one point, um, this might be an internal monologue or whatever, but she even admits to the audience that there's maybe even been a little embellishment about 
Phasma's backstory here, but not really. This is the true story, but it, you know, it's maybe a man who shot Liberty Valance type of, you know, a little bit, a little bit fuzzy on the margins, but it's a truer version of history than the one that the First Order has been putting forward about Phasma, which is decidedly different. And I think that, um, you know, in terms of history and context, yeah, there's, there's, I think there's very much a subtext of history being, you know, everybody loves to use the phrase history is told by the victors. And I think that there is, Phasma is a victor. She's a winner in the sense that her goal was survival and she has survived and she has escaped and she's gotten off the planet and she has, uh, you know, become a part of the first order. And so the story that everybody knows about her is the one that she is willing to tell. And we're finding out, you know, the context is that in, in a sense, what we find, what we know is that she has told the truth from a certain point of view that she was, you know, she came from humble beginnings and fought her way up and, and has risen through the ranks. That's absolutely true. What we find out is that it was a lot more bloody and unpleasant than <laughs> just that version of the story. Well, and there's this great quote, too, because, you know, uh, Cardinal is getting frustrated as she's telling these stories. He's like, so what? You know, Phasma's great. She's a liar. She's dishonorable. You know, uh, so what? She might have lied a little, but it's for the greater good, right? You know, it, the First Order doesn't care about any of this. And she says to him, but you should. She is the sum total of her stories, you know. And the point is so poignant today when we think about this idea of when we look at our world and we say oh well so what so somebody did this or somebody did that your character is defined by your actions and who you are is defined by your actions and yes that's a scary thing I can be personal and say even when I look at my own life there are things that are, are there that I'm like uh that shows such horrible character in my own self but when we deny that fact that it's not, uh, as Dumbledore says to Harry it, and, and Harry Potter, it's not our abilities that show who we are. It's our choices. And the choices that Phasma makes are the sum total of her character throughout the story. And what we see of her character is that she doesn't have any character. Like, yeah. her only value is her survival. That's it. Yeah. And And anybody whose only value is their own survival at the cost of anyone else, well, that's... That's a scary place to be. Here, here, here's the unsettling, the truly unsettling thing about that perspective. And I, I, this doesn't invalidate anything about the book at all, or or anything like that. But it seems to be a perspective that is creeping in more and more with the sequel era stuff. That is unsettling to me. In that, yes, you're you know the, you're the sum of your stories, and yes, your decisions define you. And yes, you should keep an eye on people who have done things in their past and you should look at them and you should say, it's not just this one story, it's all of these stories put together give you the complete picture of the person. Uh, Vi even holds back, so to speak, until we get one last story that really throws it into stark relief of how cutthroat Phasma is. That, that removes any chance of it to say, well, it's she just came from a, a tough background. You find out that she's been making these choices from the beginning. And 
what is unsettling to me about that, and I'm not trying to give it too much weight here, but a very important point to Lucas when he made the original six Star Wars films was redemption. Vader makes terrible, awful, positively evil decisions, but the door was always open for him to redeem himself. And I, again, am not trying to assign too much weight to this, but I'm going to be keeping an eye on stories like this because they will, uh, they will indicate a, a, a tendency maybe within the stories. Are these Star Wars stories being told in an era where people no longer believe in redemption? Maybe that's you know, why back yeah. in the 90s, Fett was given all of these sort of, you know, get out of jail free cards to turn him into an anti-hero, is because it's from a different era. I think that's a really interesting question. And I think at the moment, I'm going to take it more as the fact that we're going to explore the people who choose to not allow redemption to be part of their story. You know, because Vader in the end makes that choice, but it's also based off of... um other people being able to get to him. Uh, spoiler alert, if you are still listening, uh, you know, uh, Cardinal in the end makes the choice um, to give Vi the opportunity to survive. And then in the end, she saves him. And so there's that sense of redemption for a character like Cardinal, right? But I think part of that is because there's still a, a spark of humanity left in Cardinal, whereas Phasma has continually, throughout her, through the choices she's made, to destroy any force of spirit. You know, like she squelched the spirit of humanity in herself so much that it's dead. And there isn't that choice anymore. There's like a point where there is a point of no return. And I think that's kind of interesting to be able to explore to say, yeah, somebody can be so much to the dark side that there's no uh, and I, I don't mean just dark mm. side of the force but I mean just the dark side of life evil to choose evil which through Phasma is just this utter selfishness which you know is anathema to everything we think of as, as being a good human being um, that you can do that so long that you've destroyed any hope of redemption and I think that's an interesting story to, to mine as well. Uh, as long as we don't, like you said, lose that Star Wars is a place where people who have done awful things can still find redemption. Right. Um, but I think with Phasma, it's interesting to to think of and explore a character to where, and this is, I'm, I've honestly kind of hoped this might be where they take Kylo Ren as well, where you know we finally see it, the, the evil person that just, doesn't want to be redeemed, you know, and that they have to be destroyed because that's what has to be done to people who will not be redeemed, you know, um, in the in the in the sense of like, uh, like a Hitler, you know, right? No, I and and the thing is, of course, there are people like that throughout history, but it's always been. I get, I guess, the stories that I'm thinking of the the fairy tale that informs mm -hmm. Star Wars as a whole has always been about these, you know, hope, right? right? I mean, you know, Rogue One, the last one, hope. 
and it's about hope and it's about not giving up and it's about continuing to drive on. I think that maybe what is, what is affecting me, you know, again, I'm not trying to give too much weight to it, but we have gotten a lot of stories up to this point telling the first order's point of view. And granted, it's because we've been asking for that world building. And so that's what they're delivering to us. But at the same time, I don't want them to wallow in it. I, I want to spend time with the good guys and the redeemable people, right. the people yep. that are going to make me feel good at the end of the story. I don't want just yeah. stories about the bad people. And I, I agree with you. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why I was really thankful for, you know, the character of Cardinal in the story and at where his, his storyline goes. Um, uh, Dawson said at the launch party um, that we had at Dragon Con for the book, her and Claudia Gray were there. She said, you know, what's interesting uh, is that Cardinal in any other book would be the villain. Right. But then you have Phasma and you see that there's an even worse villain than somebody like this. And at the same time, too, Cardinal is also somebody that there is a chance still of redemption. And I'm right there with you. Like, I love that 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 this book kind of had that in there because without it, yeah, it would be so bleak and nihilistic. It would it would just kind of be depressing. It's like, well, uh, Star Wars Nietzsche, you know, like, you know, this is this is another thing, though, is this actually winds up making me more intrigued to read the Leia book. Because they're both released at the same time on the same day, will they act as bookends for each other? Will they act as the the two extremes uh, going on in this to pr- provide a picture of the whole that we're we're trying to appreciate going into the Last Jedi? Mm, and I, oh wow. And I would answer the question to say I think you're absolutely right. And I kind of like the way that we've inadvertently decided to cover the the books then because this one I think gives that kind of bleakness to it. Uh, And I think Leia is absolutely a book. I mean, it's the coming-of-age story of Princess Leia, you know. So um, i not giving any spoilers away. I think it it absolutely does that. It it creates that bookend to where, like, if you're reading them in this Mm. order... So, to borrow from yeah. Mike Schindler, another host here on Trek FM, who I have the pleasure of co-hosting Stage 9 with, um, it's a double feature. These books yeah, should absolutely. be read together. Yeah. Interesting. No, okay. no, that's a great, that's a really great point. So, we've danced around the idea that the First Order really gets a lot of play in this book because we get the opportunity to spend a lot of time with people that are big in the First Order, like Brendel Hux, like Cardinal, and, of course, Phasma, who will become such a big player in the book. And I, I thought it was one of the things that was really interesting and scary was the way in which the First Order truly are the fanatics. Like, they take the Empire to the nth degree. And I was thinking about this, and so I, I want to ask you if this makes sense. Um, and let me know if I'm wrong, and you will, I know. Um the Empire. That's why you right, invite is, me on here, man? Yeah. Well, no. Uh, so the Empire become comes into being in in a much less forceful way, right? You know, I mean, it, it to the rest of the galaxy, it looks like a savior, um, at least at the beginning. 
you know, uh, every we're going to have peace. We're going to have this guy, this this kindly old guy who's going to come in and he's really going to make everything OK. Right. The first I mean, the Republic was crumbling anyway. We're, we're really going to we're going to have something that's going to be great. So it really becomes something that people actually can believe in. Um, it, it's not. And it's not really necessarily they don't realize it's being forced on them because. I mean, it is, but they don't even realize it, right? Whereas the first order are these, this, this totally different thing where it's like they are the absolute fanatics who believe almost in some ways that Palpatine wasn't going far enough. Like we must impose our order on this chaos and we'll do that however we have to. Uh, and I, I thought that that was so interesting the way that they just it's not even like Nazis and neo-Nazis. Like, the closest they come to is the fanaticism we see, you know, in our modern-day terrorists. That kind of fanaticism where they just will. They are, and yet, in a more ordered sense of, like, I don't... Does that any of that make sense? It, it, it does. It does. Because I think that to Palpatine comes in and the structure is there and he uh, subverts the structure so that he can gain power so that he can control everything. And he, so he's not building anything. He's simply subverting what exists already. And the first order would be people that would come in and say, Nope, got to burn the whole house down and just rebuild. There is absolutely nothing here that works. And so in a sense, I would think that you could extend it and say that the first order would admire Palpatine and what he did to subvert that, but recognize that a mistake was leaving anything intact that could be used against him, which then winds up turn, you know, which I guess you could say is embodied by Vader. He doesn't build his own Sith as he should, you know, he builds his own Sith with Maul but then he subverts what exists with both Dooku and Vader, and that winds up being his undoing. So Dooku and Vader wind up being the very symbol of, of what he did wrong, and so they want to come in and just go from scratch. And so that makes complete sense uh, to me, and I think adds another layer to Hux's speech in The Force Awakens, when he is completely unhinged and he's talking about the corrupt republic and how awful they are, the First Order might view the Empire as simply just uh, another imperfect iteration of the Republic. And so the Republic never really went away for them. Mm. Oh, I love that. Because as you were talking, I was thinking to myself, the closest that I can kind of come to who they are is the fanaticism of the Bolshevik Revolution. Yeah. Yeah. And the way it just destroys yes. and burns to the ground everything that Russia was yes. and tries to rebuild it and, and becomes this place where, uh, you know, uh, you end up with a place like Stalinist Russia where everything is squelched out of it. Like, um, and it, it's done from this. And, and there's a couple quotes I want to read real quick from the book. Um, so bear with us because I think it really brings to light where the First Order is at this point. 
um, Cardinal is thinking to himself, and he says, this is what the First Order is all about, giving everybody equal opportunity to succeed. No matter how lowly they're beginning or, or how far off their planet, uh, there will be no rich kids here lording over the orphans, no lobbyists or interest groups or bribes, no one is starving or thirsty or dying of exposure. As far as Cardinal was concerned, anyone who opposed the obvious benefits of the First Order was a fool. And then the last one is Brendel talking to uh, Phasma. And she asks him, does your first order not seek to rule then? Yet you seem to be opposed to ruling. Uh, he grunted, there is a difference. The first order wishes to bring equality and to destroy all the petty politics of rotten bureaucracy from the plague of the galaxy. I speak of an enlightened government of thousands of people working on the behalf of billions of unenlightened people. In a place like this, however, the decisions were being made by one person only, or perhaps a small handful of wealthy despots, and their first interest was in lining their own pockets. And so, like, they've created this, and this is the beauty of this story, they've created this narrative, this false narrative, this fake news, if you want, about the First Order, which is that we're all about bringing order and instability and equality to the galaxy. And it and how do they do that? By putting their boot down on everyone and making everyone the lowest level possible, while those in the the very top echelons, you know, live in comfort and peace and joy and, and luxury. It, we even see that in the story. And I think uh, it's 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 that she's really combined all of these different things, but it really brings to me, to mind what we know of happened in communist Russia, what's happened in places like um, North Korea, or China was like this for so long, and so she's really used all of this history to create this fanatical first order that wants to say that it's one thing, but it's really another. And and it's just like Phasma. They say they're one thing, but they're really another, and they just say it loud enough and long enough that people start to believe it even though it's a lie. Well, I mean, it becomes a matter of survival to believe it. If you don't believe it, if you speak yeah. out against it, you're, you're done. And they make, that, they make that extremely clear because as soon as Cardinal loses his faith, Phasma gets mm -hmm. rid of him. As soon as Hux is no longer useful. And the thing is, I, I like the fact that you, are, uh, that, that you drew the, the, the comparison to you know, the, the Bolsheviks and, and that revolution over there. Because I actually read a uh, a book not so long ago called Koba the Dread, which was all about Stalin and went into great detail about how this this revolution that seemed to have these worthwhile ideals really did go off the rails and how it paved the way for somebody like Stalin to come in and manipulate its own system to make it even more brutal and and awful but you know it, it, to to further it you could almost see palpatine as lenin and then maybe snoke is like the stalin where he comes in and yes. he yeah. says yeah you know you did the best you could but we got to do this my way and we're going to we're going to completely level it and wipe it out and i think that actually i mean in in a large way, I think the really 
important thing that this book does besides paint a very clear picture of why we should care about Phasma is exactly what you're getting at here about the nature of the First Order. It's making the First Order not just an imperial echo, which I think would be the one of the big criticisms thrown at it after The Force Awakens of, oh, it's Empire Mark II. No, it really is worse than that. It really is even more, like... It's almost like um, it's almost like uh, you know John Gotti was saying you know once you get rid of me what's behind me is even worse, and so in a sense the first order is you know even worse. What's even worse? Yeah, it, it's well, the, it's the really... thing that you didn't realize that Palpatine was actually standing in, like he wasn't intending to. It's not like there was anything noble or good about Palpatine at all. It's just you know once once you killed the big bug and then you know the 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 even bigger bug was like hey cool no competition i'm coming in there's always a bigger fish yeah qui-gon qui-gon knew it qui-gon knew it well and what i like about what you're saying too is the way in which the book and through cardinal um shows the way in which the first order brainwashes and and conditions its troops they are legitimately and when i say brainwashed i mean it they are subjected to um subliminal messaging messaging specific targeted um uh, propaganda that they have to watch they fall asleep to it every night that i mean it it reminds me of the way in which you know kind of north korea is being controlled at this moment where there's nothing that they don't want you to know that you can know and the first order is creating a a a, a group of followers who know nothing but what they're told the truth the quote-unquote truth of the first order and what's so scary about it it's is that it's only those in power to which truly can wield this and, and this is the scary thing is at the very end when cardinal uh faces off with phasma she says oh cardinal that's your problem you were only ever meant to be the tool not the hand that wields it you're what Brendel thought he wanted, a dull creature he created to do his will. But me, I'm what he didn't even know he needed. I'm your evolution. And what that means, you're dead weight, extinct. And like, that's the scariness. Like, that's who's in control of the First Order, is people that right. are that sadistic, psychotic, and crazy scary with evil like and they don't even see it like they are and i like when we think about the first order now i think this book does such a great job of having set that up that yes like you said they are absolutely 100 percent worse than the empire well which they're, they're worse kind of crazy to think of they're they're worse in the sense that it's not just that they don't see how evil they are they see and understand how evil they are they just they're they're cool with it. Yeah, they, they don't, just like it. They don't care. It's like, yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, in, in a sense, there's a very Richard the Third character to it. Of you know, I, yeah, I'm I'm bad. Or or Yago from Othello, where it's you know, what's he then that says I play the villain? You know, I'm doing what I need to do. Well, well, who are you to judge me? I'm I'm the one that you know, I've been wronged. I my the world doesn't make sense anymore, and I I deserve what is coming to me, and so I'm going to do what I need to do to get it. Well, and it, it's the, I think what I love that Delilah Dawson does here is that she shows the utter scariness 
I can't think of an even better word than that, but the utter scariness of groupthink in the worst possible sense where all freedom is truly squelched out and the only information is the information which is controlled by a few. And, and this is the importance of, in the world in which we live today, I think the importance of this book is that it's talking about the idea that this is what happens when, when we don't have freedom of speech, when people are not allowed to, to say and disagree and to argue. Yes, as messy as all of that is that they're talking about the bureaucracy and the politics, yeah, it's messy because people don't agree. But the moment that only a few get to decide— <laughs> well. You know, uh, <laughs> what one can be said, what two is right for you to think, and three, how you should serve the glorious first order. I mean, I don't well, know. that. Again, this book is full of creepiness, and this is one of the creepiest things. See, the thing is, you're sitting there talking about the bureaucracy, and you know, and, it, and it's messy, and, and people don't agree. And I, all I can think of is Anakin saying, well, then they should be made to agree by someone else. that's what else, the first order wise. is all about. Yeah. They should be made to agree. And, um, I, you know, it's it's really it's really interesting. It's an interesting thread to pull. And it is um, it is that that world building that we we really wanted. And I think underlines. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter if we're getting it now, but I, I distinctly remember the conversations going into The Force Awakens of where's my universe where's my galaxy what's what's going on going into this in in a sense this feels even more like the journey to the force awakens than the journey to the last jedi yeah that's actually pretty true um and i i think um i want to just comment real quickly because i think this is something that um we have talked about before but i think it bears repeating it's nice that this is coming in in a book form and that it's here. But I also think that it's sad that more of this wasn't, say, in The Force Awakens to allow the resonance to be there. Because if I had understood, I think, and if anybody had really understood just kind of the ramifications of everything that's going on, um, I, I mean, this book even points out, you know, like you said, this is this is great. Uh, you know, Journey to the Force Awakens, because we find out that, you know, the New Republic doesn't think that the First Order is a threat. So there is this whole fanatical regime out there that they're just like, eh, it's fine. It's like the JV team. It's cool. Um, you know, yeah, that right. kind of understanding, yeah. I think, is so... Res I mean, when you get that and you watch The Force Awakens, it completely changes how you watch the entire movie. But that's not actually really in the movie all of that no. much as much as it, I think it should have been. And so well, I it, love that we're getting this here, but I, I worry in some senses that, you know, people are kind of losing right now because, you know, what? How, how, what, what is the percentage of people in, in, in that actually read extended material? I would say it's probably... Yeah. Like what? Maybe 5%, maybe? It's 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 not more than half. I can I can promise you that. Uh, like the, you know, this book isn't going to be read by uh, my wife or my kids before they see the Last Jedi or anything like that. But I think that a very important thing to remember is that for that audience, um, the world building that we got in the Force Awakens was enough. They they got it. They understood it. It was fine. Whatever. 
And there are there are bits and pieces there where, you know, when Poe is brought off of, uh, you know, when he's brought onto the hangar deck of the finalizer and he looks around, there is a moment where you see his face where it drops, where you can tell he's having a reaction of, wow, there's a lot more here than I expected to see. This is this is more prepared than I thought. And um, and Finn keeps talking about you don't know the first order and, and it's there. And then Hux has his speech, which I think really lays lays a foundation. But I don't necessarily disagree with you in the sense that there's enough there for the casual fan. But for the fan like we are, where we read all the stuff that comes out, we're going to read the journey to this and the journey to that, and we're going to stay focused on it, not saying we're better fans or gatekeepers or anything like that. I'm just saying for for our vibe, these sorts of things are have become necessary in order to placate the questions that we have. It's not like they tell us how Snoke came to power. They don't even interact with Kylo Ren. They mention him a couple of times in this book. Uh, and there are, you know, there are hints and illusions, but there's enough. This, w- this is the type of story that would have been enough. We don't have a complete picture of anything but Phasma at the end of this book. We have partial hints here and there about the other characters that we're going to encounter but we don't, you know, it's it's not like we have a, a clear vision of, you know, members of the First Order were also members of the Galactic Senate that split off and ran off or anything like that. But, you know, I, I'm just I'm just trying to like sort of like play both sides of it here and say that, you know, I yeah, I, I agree with you that this, this type of stuff is is tailor made and well suited to getting. Uh, getting me on board uh, w- with with these sorts of things, or getting you on board with these sorts of things, and let you know we just won't, and and it will be enough uh, for us. One of the one of the things that, and, and this is kind of more of a quick point, but I, I think it's really interesting. Um, the Brendel has a whole thing about how um, the world uh, they're asking foolish questions of him. Um, and you know, the wonderful thing about civilization is you buy what you need. Um, you know, you support your merchants and your artisans. Um, basically the idea that kind of comes across is that, you know, the wonderful thing about civilization is that I don't have to think about where things come from, like my food or my clothes or any of that stuff. I can just go and buy it. And I thought that was a really interesting dig at the world in which we live where people don't know where their food come from. And, you know, um, they don't know where their clothes come from and all of this kind of stuff. And we don't, we're so removed from the natural world. And that also plays into what happened, I think, in a way on Parnassus in the first place that this corporation had come in and uh, they ended up destroying the planet with an, or at least this part of the planet with a nuclear meltdown. Um, and just the way in which we kind of treat the things around us. And I just, I thought that that was very interesting because that kind of out of touch with nature um, plays into the, the whole way that the First Order acts about everything. But it also... It was an interesting juxtaposition because of what we know about the New Republic and how they're kind of guilty of some of these things about not really 
caring about um, parts of the galaxy that maybe haven't been liberated or anything and really taking care. I, it was just so interesting the way that she works this all together, and I just I found it fascinating. Well, I mean, there's also an echo of Lucas who was very much uh, obsessed with the idea of staying in touch with the natural mm-hmm. force, with the living yes. force. And, you know, Endor Rebirth is this, you know, giant forest planet, all, nothing but green and life and, and vivaciousness. And right. Coruscant is the polar opposite of just a giant city planet. And I, I do I do agree with you that there is a, I, I don't even think it's too subtle, where you see very much the danger of not understanding the world or how it works or the impact that you're going to have on it when you don't, nobody cares about Parnassus because they don't see the destruction. Brendel's never seen it before. Oh, weird. Okay. Well, yeah, this is what happened. And, uh, well, yeah, it's kind of a shame, but, um, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing is you could very easily get, on, you know, get on a, uh, a very, um, uh, tall soapbox and talk about the the different industries that you see, you know, delivering goods that maybe don't take, uh, you know, a, a great deal of care uh, with how they produce things. And, uh, you know, all that just to say that, you know, that I agree with you. I think that there's a very clear message about be wary about what your what your impact is is what you're getting worth the cost because you are going to create monsters. Might not be Phasma, but there will be monsters created when you go over and you don't pay mind to what it is that you're doing or do it properly. Well, and it's so interesting too because, you know, there's this juxtaposition as well as of the way that the old republic became this thing that only came a became about itself right perpetuating the self or or whatever small tribe you were part of or, or trade federation or whatever you know this this corporation had used people and worlds for their own gain and really didn't care about the people because when this happened they just abandoned the world um and and left it to in ruin and it was kind of an interesting reality of what the First Order kind of is as well in the way in which they really don't care about the people or worlds. They just want to be in control. Um, and they don't really care about that how that happens or what worlds they have to destroy. Obviously, they're willing to melt down entire uh, sectors of space, you know, with a darkular base. Um, I mean, they, they mass murdered billions of people in seconds, you know. Um, with that thing so I, I just thought that was really interesting but it was also kind of interesting to me too because then it seems like and specifically referencing the aftermath books the new report the public the new republic seems to be kind of guilty of this as well because their commitment wavers once certain systems and, and the, it seems like the galaxy is semi-liberated enough that they're willing to to not continue that commitment to liberating places like Kashyyyk and other, uh, you know, uh, unliberated planets, and that it's just good enough because you know, uh, 
it's not worth the cost maybe, or maybe they just don't see it out of sight, out of mind. And and what I kind of liked is, is just kind of how this complicates everything. Like it's not so cut and dry and black and white when we start thinking about all of these different issues um, and how there are some scary similarities between New Republic, Old Republic, First Order. They all have some veins of some of the same issues. Um, I don't know. That that was just something that really fascinated me about the story um, in the ways in which it's 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 just, I don't know, if, if it's Facebook status, it would be it's complicated. Well, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I, I think that um, a definite theme, you know, all throughout, you know, going back to the prequels and bringing it forward is the ultimate question is, what level of chaos are you comfortable with? Mm-hmm. Because there will always be chaos. The first order is chasing, you know, chasing a dragon, as it were, where their whole idea of first order, as Car- as Cardinal points out, is impossible. You know, Leia says it to Tarkin. The more systems, uh, the more you tighten your grip, the more systems will slip through your fingers. And so, in a sense, the first order is on a fool's errand trying to impose absolute order palpatine tried to subvert the republic so that the structure is already in place i can just manipulate things i've already got a way to to control everything here well that winds up not being true the republic was defined by its own chaos because padme says uh, to shmi you know slavery was illegal and you know shmi basically says the republic doesn't exist out here you know we're we're on the fringes and so it becomes i think that continual back and forth dance of how much chaos are you comfortable with and when do you strike that right balance? Well, and it it reminds me of, you know, and this goes to any group, but when you don't live up to the principles that you say that you stand for, and and Cardinal has a, a very damning statement when he's talking to Vi and he says, look, I didn't know what it was like to have a full stomach until Brendel Hux found me. I'd never slept off the sand. I'd never gone a night without waking to rats or sand fleas or something worse nibbling on me. The other kids were cruel. The adults were worse. That's what your new republic does. It ignores backwater planets and funnels money to the rich planets who can afford to have a voice in the Senate. Who spoke for Jakku? No one. Uh, and he says, you know, who spoke for the boy I was? No one. And it it becomes this thing where the, the anger that people can have when something like, say, like the New Republic doesn't live up to the values it says that it has. And I think that's an interesting thing because we really see how quickly, even in, you know, 20 years or so, even beginning, like we saw in the Aftermath series, Mon Mothma's kind of ready to, like, you know, set up shop and be done. Like, let's disband the, we're good. We're all good. You know, like, uh, instead of continuing on to the really hard work that should be continued, which is to really liberate the rest of the galaxy and set up freedom from prosperity for everyone, the hope of the rebellion, which is to, you know, throw off the, the, the yoke. Um, and that I thought that was really interesting Could this book portrays the way in which the First Order is able to find so many disenfranchised people and and woo them to their cause um, because the New Republic isn't really willing to necessarily live up to the 
the, its promises. You know that there there's actually something that that there there's something here that I, I do want to speak to because you mentioned uh, Cardinal's background being from Jakku. I think that there's another danger here because we've gone back to Jakku with some characters uh, a number of times in the books leading up to it. And we know that... Why does everybody want to go back to Jakku? But that sort of speaks to my point. Is Jakku... Yes, we all know Jakku and we all know Tatooine had both Skywalkers on it and Kenobi hid there and and that sort of thing. But But there is a danger here um, in terms of it becoming a small galaxy again. Because one of the jokes that we made on a previous 602 about another book was everybody was at Endor. And now it seems that everybody's from Jakku. And it's... it's will always big, have Jakku. Right. It, it's a big galaxy, man. You know, it is it is not a big sin. I don't hold it against the book. But when I found out he was from Jakku, my reaction was, oh, okay. All right. You know, I know Jakku, and if we've gone to Jakku and Cardinal is the second person we know of, the second character we know of in the in you know the, the larger series of books that has been pulled either by Palpatine or by the First Order, why weren't more people drafted from Jakku? Because everybody was unhappy on Jakku. Well, and we do get uh, a sense in the last Aftermath book that there it seems to be like a way station for orphans and that there are a lot of them there and um, that this was a place that the the First Order definitely, when they, after the big battle that happens there, um, that they take a lot of these kids with them and create, use them as, you know, um, the first troop rankings uh, that they create. So, you know, it does get that sense, but it's just, it, it is very interesting that... Jakku has become the new Tatooine. Uh, but it's even more than that. You know, like we, we you know, the, the two Skywalkers being from, from Tatooine are, although technically, of course, Anakin was born on another planet. But, you know, with, with the, with both Skywalkers coming from Tatooine, it served that whole story structure, the, the Norse mythology, tone poem sort of thing. Uh, going with stuff, and I again, it's not a killer thing. I'm not, I'm not necessarily knocking it. I'm just saying that having Jakku be such a, a, a waypoint for, you know, for so many of these side characters that we're meeting along the way, you know, I I would I would prefer to branch away uh, from it if if possible. But you know, again. The book as a whole was so good. It's not like I'm sitting there and I'm like, "Oh, geez, this is terrible." It's just, it, w- it was just something that that uh, that that struck that chord with me. But actually, another thing because we we talk about how Cardinal was originally the the one who did the training program and everything. Wouldn't it be so interesting? Because we don't have his his exact age, and I'm not entirely clear on how long before Force Awakens, um, that you know that this Cardinal Phasma showdown happens. Wouldn't it be so interesting? Well, I was just going to say that has been a question that uh, I even asked Pablo Hidalgo about because I wasn't sure of the timeline of the book. And so the Cardinal Phasma Vi stuff is all happening post-Bloodline. So just just for everyone. Uh, and the other stuff obviously takes place 10 years 
right. or so previously from well, from that. But the, it's still kind of nebulous as to exactly when after Bloodline this is happening, how far away this is from, you know, the the Force Awakens. That they they they're not specific. Right. Right, right. We, we, we don't know how, how far ahead, and, and since that was a little murky to me, uh, an interesting thought to me is, would it be possible that Finn was, even for a short time, there while Cardinal was there, and that's why he is a little bit different, because he would have been in the program before Phasma took over everything after Cardinal's uh, supposed death. Right. No, that's actually a good point um, because, yeah, um, one of the knocks that I would say uh, against the Force Awakens is the fact that Finn doesn't really ever feel like a character who's been brainwashed, um, really struggle through that, especially what we learn about what their training is like. Like, he never feels like that character, um, which is kind of strange. When I, Especially when I read well, this, I was like, Finn doesn't really seem like somebody who's been through this kind of training. Well, I mean, he, so. he has the he has the PS, PTSD moment uh, in the battle when his friend gets killed. And, I, you know, for me, that's enough. You know, somebody, you know, you never know what battle is going to do yeah. to somebody when they're in that. But I, I think it would be neat to find out that, you know, he was he was one of those kids that was already in the program and then Cardinal disappeared and he... You know, inertia kept him going along. So maybe there are more troopers that we don't know about where that transition from Cardinal to Phasma is going to wind up backfiring on the First Order in some way. Hmm. Yeah, that would be that would be really interesting. And I think you, you know, you do raise a good point that if if we do learn somehow someday that that Finn was a part of that, uh, I I think that would really help in that storyline. Um, I I like that a lot. Um, gosh, there's so much more that we can talk about in this book, John, but I, I feel like that instead of just continuing to ruin it all for everyone, um, where do you come down on, on Phasma, uh, ratings wise? Uh, well, a, as you know, I, I've always, I, I have always been happy to, uh, give a thumbs up or a thumbs down and I, I've become notoriously cagey about locking into to actual ratings uh, with, with Star Wars related stuff. But I would definitely give this a uh, hearty thumbs up. I would definitely say that this is completely, um, you know, let, let's say we're in the range of, uh, I don't know, um, four out of five Death Stars uh, for, for this. This is, this is really solid stuff. It kept me engaged through the entire thing. I really enjoyed it from beginning to finish. I uh, I I would highly recommend it to anybody who is not just interested in Phasma's character, but is legitimately interested in well, you know, what we've been talking about, which is providing some clarity as to what the nature of the First Order is. I, yeah, I no, I'm absolutely right there with you. My my ranking is absolutely the same too. It's uh, four out of five uh, poison daggers. I mean, it's it's just phenomenal. <laughs> lichen covered daggers. It's right. Um, or one of those sand beetles. Those things were just. Ugh, they were pretty God. great. I, I got to give her a lot of credit. Those yes. things were awesome. I and that's the thing. You know, I really wanna I really wanna call you out. Uh, 
in a, in a such a great way, Delilah. If you if you do listen, um, you did such a fantastic job of creating a a world that obviously referenced some things that we all know, like Mad Max, but it became its own thing. It felt Star Warsy enough. I I never felt pulled out of the story in that sense. I loved the characters that you created. I thought Vi was a, a uh, such a fun character. She had all the spirit and hope of of somebody that you expect to be under, you know, uh, the resistance and Leia's leadership. Um, and uh, you know, even though she works freelance as uh, somebody gathering intelligence, she definitely believes in in that role. So it was great. Um, I thought the character of Siv, who we get the story, she got the stories from, and so all the stories have been passed down and really this is interesting because uh it's phasma is like a secondhand legend because we're not getting the 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 whole story or like the it's in that legend sense like they could always if they wanted to come in and tweak some things about phasma's backstory because this is being told story you know from another person and embellished a little bit at points just to draw the comparison there was a uh, there was an episode of the x-files where they gave the history of cancer man or as he was later known cigarette smoking man and fans weren't nuts about it and so they said well keep in mind this is from the point of view of what the lone gunman knew and who were the three conspiracy theorist characters. And so they did the exact same thing where they gave themselves room to back out and say, well, you know, this isn't necessarily 100% what, what the case was. This was what somebody heard. But in, in some ways, I think it makes sense um, because I also want to call out the fact that this fits so well with the new Phasma comic, at least issue one. So after you've read this and then you read that comic, understanding Phasma in the and the Force Awakens makes so much more sense. You you know exactly why she gave up the the code so quickly. She don't care. That's that's not all she cares is about finding a way to survive. And and so I think that's uh, this book does exactly what it needed to to create a character to which now when you watch the Force Awakens, you completely understand her motivations for doing what she's doing there. And she is more scary and disturbing uh it also um makes the the whole quip uh to armitage about you know maybe snoke should think about clones um uh, an even bigger dig uh you know because you see how important this program has been from his father to him and and everything so like this book is just it's doing everything that we do want in this series which is to really open our eyes to what this sequel trilogy era is like and for that, I just want to say thank you so much to Lila Dawson. Uh, and for, you know, Star Wars uh, books, I don't know uh, what you had to do to allow Disney to say yes to this, but this is great. This is the kind of stuff that we as fans really, really enjoy. So I think it's well done all around. And I'm really excited that we got the opportunity to talk about it, John. I um, I was... I was chomping at the bit to, to be able to dive into the, the thematic elements of this book and the storyline with you. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. I, I want to say a huge thank you to the associate producers we have here on the 602 Club. Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson have been wonderful supporters of this show and the entire network through Patreon. Now, um, I, I'm sure you know, but if you don't, um, 
this is a massive network. It, it's a huge enterprise to put this together, and, and we can't do it without the help of listeners just like you. Uh, you can go over to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can support the network and become part of our team. Honestly, it, it's no joke. Every little bit helps. Um, every little bit a month, we have many different ways that we try to give back to you. Uh, there's some great perks that come with supporting us at different levels. So again, you can check all of that out at patreon.com slash trekfm. John, I have to say it is is always an absolute pleasure and a joy to have you back in the 602 Club. Um, you know, this is actually uh, where we met. And uh, so it's glad to have you back on your stool. But uh, tell everybody where they can find you if they'd like to check you out on the Internet and what else you're up to. Oh, come on, y'all. You know where to find me. I'm Kessel Junkie Online, and you can also find me right here on the network co-hosting Stage 9 with Mike Schindler. You can also find me uh, co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And if you go on over to the Nerd Party, I'm again with Mike Schindler uh, as a part of Great Shot Kid. Um, And you can find me on the Nerd Party as well with you, Matt, uh, co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations. Absolutely, which I hope everybody will do. Uh, this was kind of the godfather of that show, and, and go check it out. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we, we dropped the, the panel that I did there at, at DragonCon. Uh, Masculinity in Star Wars was a fantastic conversation with an author-laden panel. I was the only non-author on there. So uh, some great stuff. I hope you'll check that out and, and listen to John and I on Aggressive Negotiations. I'm over there on the Nerd Party as well doing owl post with drea kaufman and we're talking about all all the harry potter books one chapter at a time we are at the beginning of the prisoner of azkaban now so i hope you'll go over there and check that out here on the trek fm network i'm also doing the orb with chris jones talking about star trek deep space nine and last but not least i'm doing a show that's called cinema stories and that's where my friend courtney and i we talk all about film through the lens of faith and you can find all of those shows that john and i do all on itunes or anywhere you get your podcasts well thank you so much for joining us and may the force be with you <laughs>